also are daughters of the great, and we have wills and courage of our own. Therefore, do not bend in column A. Once bend a little, and they will bend you further until you are bowed down. Sink your roots into the rock and face the wind, though it blow away all your leaves. Hello, welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we prepare you for Amazon's big-budget adaptation of the Legendarium by keeping you up to date on the latest news and rumors, talking about prior adaptations of Tolkien's works, and discussing the characters and plots we may see depicted. I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, aka Gimli, Son of Glorn. <laughs> and I'm joined by Jen Gallagher, aka Varda, the Valar, Elbereth Gilthoniel. Queen of the Valar. Ooh, at the queen of the Valar. At last, we get a Valar. Yas queen. I love it. Yas queen. <laughs> <laughs> so, what we're doing today uh, on today's pod, we've got several updates about the show. Some really juicy ones. One that I'm really excited about, which you'll find out in a minute. Uh, and then our main topic is the tale of Aldarian and Arendis, the Mariner's wife from the Unfinished Tales. Uh, we want to discuss this work for a couple reasons. It takes place in the Second Age, so very possibly it could be a storyline that's featured in an early season. Uh, or if it's not directly adapted, at the very least, the story is going to tell us a lot about the geography of Numenor, the culture of the Numenorians, uh, and it may inform the storyline storylines that they do present. Uh, the second reason is this story is really notable because it's the only tale from the Second Age told in full narrative form, or just about the only a full narrative story we get for the most part the unfinished tales the calabeth the calabeth is somewhat of a narrative but it's told in a really remote fashion and everything else about the second age that we get is more of like a timeline or an annal form of presentation so there's a lot of dialogue in uh aldarian and Arendis. there's um, a lot of tolkien's voice and then you know the beautiful prose that we love from uh, lord of the Rings. so it's a, a really kind of a great golden nugget for second age material. So I'm really excited to talk about this. It's a story I haven't read in a long time. And so I'm glad, I'm glad you really pushed for it, Jen, because um, uh, this wasn't, you know, on the top of my list, but I'm glad you pushed for it because it was great to reread. Yeah, I am so excited about this story. I think it's probably one of my favorites from his entire Legendarium, even though it is, in fact, unfinished. Um, it is has all the trappings of a classic Tolkien work, um, but it is a, I would call it a tortured love story, which is pretty unique for Tolkien. And it yeah. is it is so enjoyable. It is so um, unique amongst um, his stories. And so we're really going to take our time with it. We're going to dive in. And I think if, if people want to read along, that would be awesome if we turn this podcast into a type of book club. And also we're going to talk about how this could be adapted for the screen. Um, we are hoping again that it is adapted, but uh, we do have ideas on how it could be adapted. And so um, before we dive in and get started on all our juicy material, uh, we'd like to mention that if you like what we're doing here and you want to support us, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and share us with your friends on social media. And doing that is going to help other Tolkien fans find us and and connect with our material. So please follow, share, subscribe if you're enjoying this podcast. So before we get into the news, I want to do a quick follow-up from our last episode. So our last episode was on the Blue Wizards. And after we recorded the episode, but before we posted it, uh, we put a poll up on our Twitter feed uh, at LOTR Party, and because uh, I wanted to, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't listened to the Blue Wizards episode, which you should go back right now and listen to it, 
But um, Jen had a great idea that one or both of the blue wizards could be a female wizard. It could be a female Maiar. There's not really much in the uh, Tolkien's written works that is definitive one way or the other about them being men uh, or male, that is. And uh, so that was a really, really fun idea that Jen had. And so I, you know, we put that up on our Twitter feed to see who would be into that. So we did a little poll and I'll read the poll here. So um, the post was from my quick search, Tolkien never used pronouns when describing the blue wizards or wrote anything conclusively making them male. Quick poll, if Amazon includes the blue wizards in Lord of the Rings on Prime, how many of you would like to see one or both of them depicted as female? Uh, And we actually got pretty good responses. We got 25 votes and um, the options were, you know, yes, we'd like to see one or more depicted as female. No. And I also put an I don't care option in there because, you know, some people just are going to say, I I don't care one way or the other. Um, And so, Jen, uh, any guesses on the outcome of this poll? You know, I have to hope and pray that people voted yes. I mean, I think this is like a no brainer, to be honest with you, because we we don't we don't want another Gandalf. We already have Gandalf and we love him. But I think it is time for a reimagined Tolkien universe. And that includes, you know, gender swapping. I think we're ready for that. I think the fan base is ready for that, or I hope they are. And I'm certainly ready for some more prominently featured female characters and some empowered female characters. Um, they are, they definitely exist in the Tolkien universe, but we need, I, I think seeing female wizards would be so cool. And there are so many opportunities um, within that. And so I, yeah, I, I'm going to say that people voted yes. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Well, and to touch on what something you said, I mean, you said there's room for gender swapping. I don't even know that we need to be doing gender swapping because kind of the point of this whole exercise is that we don't know what the gender of the wizards are, not conclusively. And so it's not even gender swapping. It's gender ambiguous. And so the showrunners, I think, have to make a choice one way or the other. And so what's stopping them from choosing uh, a, to make it a female wizard? And I echo everything that you just said. Exactly. Well, so yeah, exactly. I hate to dash your hopes, Jen, but oh, no. a, a solid fifty-two percent said no. Over half said just unequivocally no. Not down for a female wizard. Um, well, damn! <laughs> I'd like to hear their I, reasons. I, w- Maybe we'll bring them on the pod. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want to come on the pod and defend your stance, come on over. You know where to yeah, find yeah. us. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll do battle with you on. On our, <laughs> but um, we'll duel. We'll have a wizard. Yeah, wizard duel. duel. Yeah. Um, so fifty-two percent said no, and the other, the remaining forty-eight percent was split evenly between yes and I don't care. Which I think those two kind of go together. Basically, the, both those options are an element of sort of willingness to see a female wizard. But I, w- you know, like you, I was a little surprised that this many said said unequivocally no. You know, um, I, I thought well, it'd be a, kind of an easy an easy yes. Yeah, it's it's a little disappointing, but I but I will say there we know for sure there's going to be a lot of female characters on this upcoming sure. series and female characters in surprising roles, which we're going to get to in the news, some of the news that that Michael's going to shed light on. Right, right. Well, and I think this poll, you know, I don't want to put too much stock in this poll. This isn't a scientifically done survey or anything, but it it may indicate that the fandom isn't that psyched about having female 
leads or female characters cast at all. I don't know. I, I don't want to read too much into it, but if they're not willing to see um, a gender ambiguous character from the uh, Tolkien's writings portrayed as a female, then, you know, maybe they're going to have some uh, opinions about how I, strongly we see female characters depicted in the, the show at large. Listen, you can't please everybody. I know that this series is going to disappoint, you know, one fan base or the other because nobody's ever, I mean, look at Game of Thrones. A lot of people wouldn't even watch Game of Thrones who are huge fans of the book. And then people who did watch it, you know, were very sorely disappointed by um, many elements in that story. So, you know, it's inevitable people are going to be disappointed, but I do think we have to go into this series with an open mind because they are not going to stick to the books exactly. And there's a lot of material that they're going to have to invent out of, you know, just sketches. They don't have as much to work with. So I'm going in with a fairly open right, mind. Right. Well, and one really good thing that did come out of this survey, uh, I we got into a really interesting discussion with um, uh, another uh, Twitter Tolkien fan, um, Turgon at uh, Turricano the Wise. And he chimed in um, to sort of challenge the premise of the, the poll, because uh, the question was, you know, the premise of the question was that Tolkien didn't definitively state one way or the other that they were male. And, you know, I should preface that this by saying he did in the various times that he described the wizards say that they came in the, sh- the form of old men. Now, in all the instances of that description that I found, he used the capital M, and it's pretty well established that when Tolkien uses capital M men, he's referring to sort of the race of men. So not male, just the race of men when he uses a capital M. And so, you know, I saw all these instances of describing the wizards as being in the form of old men, capital M. And I said, okay, well, that just says that they're the race of men. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're male. So I didn't really read that one way or the other. Um, but Turgon did chime in and say, uh, pointed out that in letter 131, um, and there's you know a great book on Tolkien's letters that is just so informative. You guys should all go out and buy it. But in 131, Tolkien says, quote, they appear always as old men and sages, and though sent by the powers of the true West in the world, they suffer themselves, their age and gray hairs increase only slowly. And the reason that passage is important is because in this instance, when he says old men, the men is not capitalized. The men is lowercase. Now, you know, this single reference, this is the only time that I could find um, and you know, uh, Turgon pointed it out. This is the only time that I've heard of when men, in reference to the wizards, was lowercase, which might indicate that it's masculine. Um, but it did appear in a footnote in a single, you know, personal letter. So was it just sort of uh, was it a mistake? You know, it wasn't. He wasn't writing it to be a published work or anything. So it's hard to read it one way or the other as maybe being definitive of what Tolkien's intent was. Um, and, you know, regardless of his intent, this is, uh, I am not a purist, you know, in that I think we need to stick in every instance always to ex- exactly what Tolkien intended. I mean, there are certain instances where I think there's creative license and um, I know it, I know that Amazon will take creative liberties because they have to, mm-hmm. um, because it's the nature of the work, but um I I really think that any opportunity to to represent have more representation of of females in prominent roles is is a good thing in my opinion. Um and so regardless of the author's intent, I really think that um 
reimagining wizards as female. I just, I stand by this. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I just, uh, you know, props yeah. to Turgon for pointing that out. Um, I didn't find it. That's research. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's... Did their homework. And, you know, when you're... And to your point, when you're deciding whether or not to depart from the author's intent, it's always important to first know what the author's intent was so you know whether or not you are right. departing from it and whether or not that's a good choice. So um, it's, you know, it's always an interesting exercise to go through, you know, to figure out what Tolkien intended. I, I think he, you know, it's hard to say because there's nothing, in my opinion, definitive one or the other. He probably did envision them as being men just because of the prevalence of male characters anyway. Um, but you know, one, one thing that I think is interesting is that he totally reimagined the Blue Wizards at the end of his life and like the last year or two of his life, totally rewrote the story. And he might have had a different right. attitude towards, I mean, he always, you know, featured fem- some female characters very prominently and, and they had a high power level. So I don't know if his attitudes might have changed, but it's just interesting to note that after that letter, which is a single reference to a masculine, the masculinity of wizards. Uh, you know, years after that letter, he reimagined the Blue Wizard. So it's, it's. I think it's totally up in the air, and I, th- I think it's an area where, as you pointed out, uh, Amazon has. I think you know, it's fair game. I think that they uh, have sort of create the room to exercise creative license and make that choice. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for putting out that poll. And thank you to everyone who participated. This is the kind of discussions that we really enjoy having. And it's it's a way to connect um, over this material that we love. So thank you for everyone who participated. So news for today. There's been actually quite a bit of news since our last episode. Um, one thing for fans of the Peter Jackson adaptations, HBO Max is now streaming the extended versions of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. And that's exciting because I think most fans of the movies recognize that the extended versions are really the only versions to watch. So second bit of news, it looks like Amazon has cast three warlords for the new Lord of the Rings series. And this comes from uh, an outlet called Redanian Intelligence, and they had broken some casting news before. And they, I guess they have some research assistant who's digging through acting resumes or actors' resumes because they found three actors whose resumes say that they're located in Auckland, New Zealand, and that they are cast as, you know, quote, warlord in upcoming fantasy TV show, parentheses, Amazon. So there's really only one show that fits the bill where they're filming in New Zealand, and that's Lord of the Rings. So it looks like we got some warlords, and so we probably got some war. And one of them is, drumroll please, female. There's a female warlord. Yeah, yeah. According to this report. Yeah. So, you know, that's exciting. I mean, uh, who do we think these warlords are? I really don't know. I've been thinking a lot about it. I mean, you know, it could be any group out of, you know, what we call the Easterlings, which are probably actually several different groups of men, you know, out of the East, you know, evil groups of men. Or I don't want to say that they're all evil by nature, but they, you know, are, because they've been in the East, they've sort of become captive by first Morgoth and then Sauron. So they're considered sort of the evil groups of men. It's probably someone in that group, but it's kind of, it's kind of open. It could, you know, it could also be orcs. We could also be talking about orc warlords. There's a chance it could be dwarves. Yeah. You know, there's also a possibility that these are Numenorians. Like these are Numenorians who are turned, who are now, you know, under the influence of Sauron and they go warring with other places in Middle Earth who start to conquer, you know, these Middle Earth territories. That's kind of 
my theory. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, we definitely know that at the when we're getting closer to the downfall, I mean, even a thousand years before the downfall, the Numenoreans have, you know, they've kind of uh, tipped in the direction of the dark side and they're starting, when it, they go to Middle Earth, they come as conquerors and no longer as benevolent, a uh, benevolent group that's sharing their wisdom. They're coming as, you know, a, a benevolent group that wants to take all your stuff. So it could definitely, you're right. It could be definitely be some Numenorean warlords. Yeah, I'm interested to see. And um, I was excited that these are, um, it looks like at least two of them are natives. They are New Zealand natives. So again, using locals, I think is always a great thing. And what an opportunity. Right, right. For these guys. And they're all very young. Very, very young. Very young. So it looks like I'll be moving to New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> um, I better let my husband know. He can work from anywhere. So this game. Yeah. I guess all you really have to do is just live in New Zealand. You got a pretty, not a huge population in New Zealand. You got a decent shot at, get, shot at getting cast. <laughs> if only, Michael, if only. I mean, one of the actors here, he's, he's 18. Just a young buck. I mean, how exciting to have this on your resume. Yeah. You know, at 18 years old, I mean, to say I'm jealous is a massive <sighs> understatement. Well, and I want to, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm really curious how they would play that with warlords. I mean, a warlord, it's going to be a leader of men. Usually they're not like, you know, baby-faced youngins. So I'm... I'm Are these hobbit warlords? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little hobbit warlords. That's what the hobbits were up to in the second age. <laughs> Before they calm down and retired in the Shire. Well, let's see, let's see. I don't know. Let's see how short he is. This this, this one guy's 174 centimeters. How how tall is that? I'm an American. Oh dear, we're Americans. We're American dum dums. <laughs> we need to Google. Uh, five seven. Five seven's. Five seven's not that not mean, tiny, but it ain't tall. Not tiny, not tall. It's a it's a respectable height. <laughs> every every height's a respectable height. What would be an unrespectable height? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good point. A disrespectful yeah, yeah. height. <laughs> okay. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Um, there were some reports uh, a couple weeks ago that a tsunami was going to hit New Zealand, and so they shut down. Uh, they shut down production very briefly in order to, you know, I don't know, not get devastated by a giant tidal wave. Fortunately, it didn't hit New Zealand. It, you know, I guess missed things altogether. So. Uh, nothing got damaged. Someone pissed off the Valar. I, yeah, I was, you know, hey, maybe they're thinking, hey, this is our chance to to film the downfall, all right, with a natural wave. Let's get the cameras out. Oh, gosh. I mean, the things that this series has already overcome, like a global pandemic just being one of them, like the challenges that, you know, have already had un- undoubtedly set this series back or are just um, a little bit daunting so i hope that production is not delayed yeah it's actually very lucky that they're filming in new zealand because they probably were able to resume filming a lot earlier than they otherwise would have because new zealand was so careful you know the the rates of infection were so low that they just sort of everybody quarantined there all the actors quarantined there i think and they were able to resume filming like you know pretty early relative to the rest of the world so that's actually pretty lucky that's right yeah, and I mean, some places are going back on lockdown. Luckily, here in the United States, we're actually faring decently well now. But um, 
but I know a lot of places in Europe are going back on lockdown. So I'm glad that the show is is able to film and continue production because we are eager beavers over here. We can't wait. And uh, speaking of eager beavers, we got a, a little scuffle between a couple e- eager beavers in our ongoing <laughs> <laughs> ongoing uh, drama narrative in the fandom. So there's a little scuffle between the OneRing.net and Fellowship of the Fans. OneRing.net, of course, been around for ages. Um, the most followed uh, Tolkien fan site in existence. And Fellowship of the Fans, relatively new, but they're a good source for uh, leaks about the show. And uh, the OneRing.net commented on one of their posts and sort of poking fun at them for strategically making all their videos 15 minutes or less, saying, oh, you're, you know, you're playing the game. You're trying to get higher rankings in the YouTube algorithm. Um, and some people took that crack as being in bad taste and they lashed out at Torn, sort of criticized them for, I don't know, you know, for hating on Fellowship of the Fans and uh, Torn. Uh, I kind of. They promptly apologized I, and said, we didn't have any malicious intent. And then the world moved on. And so it's not really a big deal. Not a big deal. But it is also like, of course, of course you want more hits. Of course you're going to play into the YouTube al- algorithms. I mean, they're still relatively new. Fan- uh, we're talking about Fellowship of the Fans here. And so I don't I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing at all. No, not. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. It was. It, it, yeah. If that was a criticism, it was not a sensible criticism because that, that's what everybody should be doing if they're trying to, you know. It's a pretty tame. If this is our biggest scuffle, it's a pretty um, it's a pretty warm environment. Uh, yeah. I'll just say that. Uh, if this is like I'm, our biggest drama. I'm scraping the juicy gossip. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel to get some. <laughs> Get some drama for sure, but uh, I wish someone would come after us. Then at least we'd be. It means we've made it big, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the only. Yeah, exactly. I, as soon as you have a troll, you're, you're a big. <laughs> right, time. right, yeah. Some hey, anybody out there want to troll us? We'll we'll send you a gift basket. <laughs> uh, I think it's just because yeah, the Wondering.net is the biggest site, and so I think people are going to be a little more critical of them and unforgiving when they do something, and they're more likely that's to be true. misinterpreted. The world is and, watching. Yeah. So they have kind of a tougher job than the rest of us. We can say whatever we want here as we're screaming into the void. We're just flapping our jaws all around about female blue wizards. Yeah, Yeah, that's definitely going to get us a troll. All right, bring it on. Um, So what else is new? Yeah, we're just we're just courting controversy here at uh, Watch Party. (laughs) Living on the edge. All right, so here's some real news. Uh, Actor Tom Budge, who's on the show, we don't know what role he was playing, but he has left the show. Uh, it was announced via Instagram, uh, Tom Budge of ECAL. I have no idea what of ECAL. It looks like Ophical. Tom Budge Ophical. I'm sure that's not <laughs> what he meant it to be. It's not a handle. <laughs> but that's his Instagram handle. But on his Instagram page, he said that um, Amazon saw the first couple episodes, decided to basically cut his character. Quote, after recently seeing the first episodes shot over the last year, Amazon has decided to go in another direction with the character I was playing. End quote. So, oh my gosh, um, you know, tough, tough breaks for actor Tom Budge. Can you imagine? I'd be absolutely devastated. Devastated. Yeah. That's got to be the worst feeling. And I know I've heard, you know, other anecdotes of this happening to actors where you shoot like multiple episodes or even a season and they're like, you know what? It's just not working. To get fired after having already put in all that work and never, never have it see the light of day, like that, that would be. Oh, yeah really tough pill to swallow especially from you know this this amazon's um this series because it's a huge deal so i 
I my biggest fear is that it means they'll have to reshoot and and that it will take longer for the series to air because they're reshooting. Right. And I, I just don't want to wait anymore. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think they I mean, you know, if they're cutting his entire character, now we don't know how big his character was. So he could have a small character that wasn't super prevalent in the early episodes. So cutting him will just be a matter of, you know, cutting a couple of maybe unimportant scenes and they're not going to have to... I hope he's like an extra yeah, and right. he had like two lines and he's <laughs> right, like, they're right, going a different direction right. when he's like, <laughs> when he appears and is like, hail king! <laughs> and they cut him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if, uh, if he's a major character, then him being cut might signify that they're, you know, reworking significant plot points and narrative lines and uh, are going to have to reshoot entire episodes and do new scripts and who knows how far back this could push things. Ugh. Yeah. I shudder. I shudder to think. <laughs> but it, but uh, it gives us more time to dive into the works of Tolkien. So we're fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually not fine with that. I'm dying to see the show. <laughs> so <laughs> kudos to you for trying to find well, the silver I'm, lining. I'm looking on the bright side. <laughs> it's spring. Happy spring. It's a new day. We're fighting COVID. I'm trying to be positive. All here. right. I, I appreciate I appreciate that effort. I'll let you be the, the sunny one. I'm going to be the gloom and doom. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of people were freaking out that this was a sort of a harbinger of problems. Like, uh, you know, uh, the OneRing.net posted a, a tweet sort of detailing all the production problems they've had so far. Um, sort of painting a picture that this is a troubled production and that there are problems creatively, logistically, and, you know, kind of causing people to worry. I'm not, I am not too worried. You know, I, I think all the quote unquote production problems they've had so far are pretty minor. And frankly, if they're going to change things up, change the direction of character, change the plot lines, I, I, I hope that they are not afraid to do that. If they decide, if they look at what they're filming and, and think to themselves, this isn't working, then fix it. Get it right. Because once you start, once you yeah, release I, the season, you know, once you finish it, right. you're kind of locked in at that point. And if you've done something bad, if you made a, a, a bad call, there's no going back. So, you know, if right. you got to make some tough cuts, The fact cuts, that they're taking time, right. The fact that they're taking time with this is, I think that's a very good thing. And and it's not going to be rushed. I mean, we saw the results of a of a rushed job already in the Tolkien, in the world of Tolkien <laughs> yep. uh, adaptations. And so I would be sad if that happened again. And um, I think you're right. As much as it pains me because we're going to have to potentially wait longer, um, you know, it's probably the right call. And everybody remember that the pilot episode for Game of Thrones had to be completely reshot and they recast Daenerys Targaryen, the main character or, you know, one and of the main thank characters. thank goodness they right. did because we would not have our Daenerys that we know and love. Right. So people just calm down, take a deep breath, you know, get out of pacemaker, <laughs> Listen to the revive podcast. yourself. We'll get you through yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen to the dulcet tones of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime. The dulcet tones. We'll keep you calm. Uh, another exciting piece of news. Um, we have discovered, relatively confirmed, that there's a new director that's uh, been slated to, to do some episodes. So Fellowship of the Fans, usually a good source of leaks. Now, they made clear that this is not a confirmed leak. So they haven't confirmed it 100%. But they believe, with a relatively high degree of confidence, 
that uh, director Che Yip, and I may be mis- mispronouncing that, but Che Yip has been um, hired to direct some episodes, you know, an undisclosed number of episodes for the show. And he has been a director on some other Amazon shows, Hunters, um, which is actually a pretty decent show on Amazon that featured Al Pacino. It followed some uh, basically Jews in the 60s that hunt Nazis living in America. Uh, it's pretty good. And uh, Chayip also directed some episodes of Wheel of Time. So another major Ooh. big budget fantasy series that Amazon is helming. So they clearly saw what he was doing with the Wheel of Time, liked what they saw, and said, hey, let's port you over to Lord of the Rings and use your fantasy skills for um, our far more important series, Lord of the Rings. Yes, infinitely more important. <laughs> um, but, you know, go watch the video. It's on Fellowship of the Fans' YouTube page. And he sort of goes through the reasons or you can look on his Twitter as well, and he writes it down. Um, all the reasons that he believes Chayip has been hired, and it basically all stems from uh, a like uh, production assistant or somebody's assistant who put on their own resume their like affiliation with Chayip, uh, like working with Chayip on you know an Amazon fantasy series. So you know some. Production assistant might be getting fired for making for leaking this information. Oh no! Yeah, because they are so tight lipped. I mean, they're not messing around with this show. Nothing gets right, leaked. Right. So very little gets leaked. We got to go digging for things. So I, I think that's great that Chayip is involved, and I still no word on the female director, the rumored female director. So I'm still peaked to see who that is going to be, and my. I have my ear to the ground on that one. So if anyone wants to write us and tip us off to who that female director is, I'm much more interested in that. Yeah, that would be interesting to know. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, my view of the the who is a director for such and such episode, I'm not that into it because for major productions like this, the showrunners are the ones who make the final call in terms of the scripts and the characters and the direction and the look and feel of the show. I mean, the show is going to be consistent from episode to episode. So, you know, it is customary to have, you will often have different directors um, directing different episodes, but they're not going to bring a totally different vision or, you know, uh, aesthetic to that particular episode because it's already been set by the showrunner. So it is interesting to figure out who's going to direct certain episodes, but I don't think we can take that information and extrapolate what the sort of style or tone is going to be based on their prior work, because they're not the ones who are making the larger calls. It's the showrunners. It is the showrunners indeed. And we have so little to work with on that front that it's, it is just hard to know in general what the, what the feel of the show is going to be, but uh, we're going to speculate away till we get it. All right. So Michael, um, what is your final piece? Fill us in on your final piece of news and updates from the show. Final piece, the most important piece. And I'm just, I'm so excited. This is <laughs> this is going to be a thing. Um, so Russell Crowe posted a pic of himself prepping for a shoot. And this is something that he's done. It's actually like a, a series uh, that he's done called uh, The Actor Prepares. And this is number 14 in the series. And he's posted pictures of himself preparing for other roles uh, that he's filmed in the past. It's a really fun little series. You can go look it up and the latest in this line is just a picture. And Jen, I hope you have this in front of you, but it's a it's a picture of just his eye, his right eye. And you can see his hair on his side of his head. 
and you can see basically nothing else in the background. So it's just hair and you get, you get eye and hair. And the, the thing that's interesting is that the hair, it looks like it's done up in like ringlets, which ringlets to me is the only time a man would have ringlets, like long hair with ringlets, you know, not, not short curls, long ringlets. That's, that's sort of a medieval period hairstyle. Wow. I mean, you're right. If they are going for period film, this definitely harkens back to the days when men used to put a lot more effort <laughs> into their hairstyles. Um, I I mean, again, I would be thrilled if Russell Crowe's involved. I really don't see much aside from this photo to indicate that he is, but everyone you know everybody would be enthusiastic about that so i hope that he i hope that he is but i am also surprised that he was able to post this if it is some kind of leak you know well and i think i mean so he did a really good job of not revealing anything because like i said it's just his eye and his sideburns basically his ringlet sideburns there's like nothing in the background no, you know, I don't know, makeup stuff in the background because people will zoom in. I mean, I, you know, I got out my sort of little magnifying glass. I mean, not really. I zoomed in uh, on my computer, but I zoomed in and tried to see if there's anything that was visible that might give something away. And there's nothing. I mean, there's really, there's really nothing. So um, this is, which to me, in a way, indicates that it is Lord of the Rings because he is being so careful about the information he's conveying in this photo. I mean, it's, you look at other pictures in the series, it's his whole body, it's his whole face. Um, You get a lot more information from his other videos, whereas this one is almost nothing, which would only be the case if you got a really tight-lipped production where they don't want you revealing any spoilers. So I, you know, I, I got my hopes up. And this is coming on the heels of other rumors that he's been cast. I mean, the one ring.net has, has pushed this rumor out a couple times, um, which is, you know, this isn't in a vacuum. This is, you know, seems to be validating a pre-existing theory. Right. Well, I love me some Russell Crowe. I, I, I think that he's so versatile. I loved him in Les Miserables. And, you know, that's a wonderful period film. And I think he'd be... An excellent choice aside from the fact that he's so recognizable, but if he delivers an amazing performance, I think that won't matter as much. Yeah. I. So we've talked about this before, how we don't want this show to be sort of burdened with a bunch of really heavy hitters, famous celebrity type actors. You know, Big names are actually going to be a problem in a series like this where you have a lot of different characters. It's probably actually better to have some no names. So in general, I wouldn't want a star like Russell Crowe to be involved. But I think Russell Crowe's just in kind of that sweet spot in his career where he's not, he, you know, he's a little bit past his prime. He's not the A-list celebrity he was when he, you know, filmed Gladiator. Uh, he's a great actor. He's a little older. I don't know. I, I just don't think it would have the warping effect that a, another, um, you know, A-list actor might have if they were cast. So I, I think it would work. I, I would be excited about it. I would too. He's probably the only one too of the of the, you know, big celebrities that I'd be excited about. All right. Well, thank you for that news roundup, Michael. That was positively titillating. I served to and titillate. now <laughs> 
I want to make that his official slogan. Uh, We are going to get started with our Mariner's Wife deep dive. And this work is so extraordinary. I cannot wait. It was published after Tolkien's death. Um, His son, Christopher Tolkien, uh, helped to bring this story to life. And we're so glad that he did. So the Mariner's Wife, for those who are not familiar, is the love story of Aldarion and Arendis. So Aldarion is the future king of Numenor. The entire thing takes place in Numenor. But he is constantly yearning to explore beyond its borders. His grandfather cultivated this his love of the sea and exploration and seafaring, uh, much to the chagrin of his father, who would rather see Aldarion take a leadership role in governing his people on Numenor. Uh, Arendis, the character Arendis, is the wife of Aldarion and is a lover of all things in nature and trees in particular. Who does this remind us of? Um, Their relationship and the challenge of merging two lives and conflicting wills creates the central tension of this story. Um, And this is sort of everything in Tolkien's universe. You know, you'll often see these recurring themes or recurring characters and storylines and things like that. And this to me reminds me a lot of Ivana and her husband, Aule, um, who are the the, uh, Maya. So throughout this story, the narrative unfolds into a classic Tolkien epic exploring themes of pride, love, and destiny. So it's going to come back to those themes over and over again, and we'll point it, we'll point these out as we go. And it is really unique among Tolkien stories as one of the few that explores not just love, but the complexities of marital relations. Uh, most of the other love stories that we see don't really get into the nitty gritty, you know, the, the problems that can emerge between husband and wife, uh, you know, if you have different interests, different moods, uh, and most of the love stories are really fantasy love stories, and the challenges that they overcome are external challenges they overcome together. Those are sort of most, to the extent Tolkien writes about love, which is rarely anyway, um, it, it tends to be those types of love stories. But this one is far more realistic. It's it, There's a lot more realism and nitty-gritty, sort of the, the dirty day-to-day of, not, you know, day-to-day that we, we experience day-to-day, but... Um, it feels a lot more realistic than these other fantasy love stories. And uh, it's, it's really unique for that reason. And the fact that the tale of Aldarian Arendis is subtitled The Mariner's Wife, I just think that telegraphs from the outset that in this story, Tolkien is exploring roles, you know, gender roles, community roles, you know, in, in that the male role, Aldarian, is the mariner and the king, and Arendis is his wife you know, the Mariner's wife. I think there's just something subtle to be found there. Even in the title, it says something about the type of story we're going to be reading and the themes that we're going to be exploring. Right. And you'll see throughout that the perspectives, Aldarion and Arendis, they are given equal weight, even though perhaps Aldarion is given slightly more um, paid time on the page. Um, you you will see it indicated that Arendis, the the perspective of Arendis is absolutely as valid and um, as explored as Aldarion, uh, which I think is very also very unique among the works of Tolkien. Right, absolutely. So the story opens by establishing the lineage of Menelder, who is Aldarion's father. Uh, and Menelder is pretty present throughout the story. And Menelder would become the fifth king of Numenor, and the story basically starts off with the description of his character. And I think even though Menelder is not the main character, it's Im- I think it's important to understanding Alderion to understand who his father was because their relationship is a, an important secondary plot here. So, um, you know, the second paragraph starts with, Menelder was a man of gentle mood, without pride, 
whose exercise is rather in thought than in deeds of the body. He loved dearly the land of Numenor and all things in it, but he gave no heed to the sea that lay all about it, for his mind looked further than Middle-earth. He was enamored of the stars and the heavens. All that he could gather of the lore and the Eldar and Adain concerning Ea and the deeps that lay about the kingdom of Arda he studied, and his chief delight was in the watching of the stars. He built a tower in the for- uh, Forestar, the northernmost region of the island, where the airs were clearest, from which by night he would survey the heavens and observe all the movements of the lights of the firmament. So just right off the bat, I think, man, it's just so nice to read some Tolkienian prose. Mm-hmm. Sweet prose. <sighs> Give me that sweet prose. <laughs> but <laughs> we want it. So I, I had a couple observations uh, about this passage, and um, you know, Jen, jump in if if anything struck you. But you know, first I thought it was interesting that Tolkien is starting the story with an in-depth character description. You know, a, a full paragraph devoted to describing a character, which I, I think is kind of odd. Tolkien tends to describe settings. Um, you know, geography, a building, uh, a tree, a forest, these things he likes to describe in great detail, but oftentimes his, the physical attributes of his characters are not well described. And even their emotional, you know, internal character attributes are often not described in detail. You know, he'll, he'll opt to describe them through the narrative. So it's kind of unusual to start out, not only to get such a detailed description, but also to start the entire narrative with that description. I'm, I'm not sure what that means exactly, but I'm thinking maybe that kind of means I, it's kind of, this is going to be more of a character study type of story. That's such a good point. And I think it is, I mean, it is, it is a character study as well as you'll see as we get further on that the attributes of these people and the tensions between them are the focal point of this story, uh, which, which makes it unique. Very, very unique. Um, it's certainly not, not um, like the medieval works that he harkens back to traditionally. So, right, yeah, once again, it is, you know, that that is a good point. That's a good catch. And everything that we get about Menelder, to me, is telling us that he is he's really a man of quality. You know, if you read, if you've read enough of other Tolkien, you kind of know the attributes that Tolkien values in a character, in a person, you know, what makes him a, a good, high-quality person. And Menelder seems to have all of those attributes. Uh, the most important descriptor here is is basically the first thing that's said about him is that he is without pride. And I've, it is really well established that Tolkien hates pride. I mean, basically every evil character at some point is described as being prideful and their pride ends up being their downfall or it's you know an important aspect of their character. And so the fact that Meneldil is without pride, not even like with little pride, but just without pride, tells us that he is a really kind of high quality person. Right. I mean, he likes to, a lot of his uh, heroes are these noble, you know, almost flawless individuals. And so the fact that um, he gives these characters more color is really fun. And um, they're, they're a lot more human. Even Menelder will see he is flawed, but he is not um, prideful, right. and he'll be contrasted to other characters in this story. And he's also described as being of gentle mood, which I think in other fantasy works, like for instance, if we were to hear that in uh, George R. R. Martin story in Game of Thrones, gentle mood might be a synonym for weak, you know, a weak character. Um, 
not weak character, but you know, weak in terms of strength and, and not being able to stand out for themselves. That I don't think is how Tolkien tends to use it. I think that gentle mood in the legendarium is a very high quality attribute. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, a- absolutely Aragorn is maybe not of gentle mood because he's really, he is really tough and strong, but he is gentle and he's a healer. And so I think gentleness is not a negative attribute in Tolkien as it might be in other fantasy stories and other medieval type stories. So I, that, that word gentle, I don't want to read too much into it, but it is sort of, you, it it is an example of how Tolkien's universe differs from the typical fantasy universe. And it sort of defines what makes his fantasy high fantasy and that he values certain moral attributes that don't get uh, a lot of play in other fantasy universes. Gentleness is not always considered a good thing, um, but it is definitely valued in in the Legendarium. Mm, yeah, he definitely does not have the hyper-masculine, you know, aggressive heroes that we see in, 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 in much of the fantasy world. I think he has a refreshing portrayal m- most of the time of, um, of, of these men who are his heroes. Right, right. It's refreshing. So another interesting piece here that we get about Menelder is that it says he loves Numenor, loves them dearly, uh, loves the island dearly, but he does not care for the sea. Now, you wouldn't necessarily know this um, reading this passage in a vacuum, but this tale comes right after a description of Numenor and from or a, a, a chapter that's literally titled Description of Numenor. And in that chapter, we learn that the people of Numenor are a seafaring people. I mean, they are an island. They're, you know, they have to sail to get anywhere, um, you know, to get to Middle Earth and interact with any other communities. They would have to sail. So they are seafaring people. And uh, in that chapter, it says, quote, beyond all other pursuits, beyond all other pursuits, the strong men of Numenor took delight in the sea, in swimming, in diving, or in small craft for contests of speed in rowing or sailing. So, and we're getting a glimpse into culture mm-hmm. here. That's why I love this work too, is we're, we're getting a great glimpse into the Numenorean culture. And this is definitely going to be a huge part of the upcoming series. Yeah. And it's really different, very different from the Middle Earth that we know from the Lord of the Rings, where the sea is a far off mm-hmm. place. You know, the, the elves. Mysterious. Yeah, the elves love it. They um, sing songs about it, but not even the el- all the elves have seen it. You know, the elves of Mirkwood have heard songs of the sea, but they, you know, Legolas has never seen the sea. The hobbits who live closer to the sea than most other people in the middle earth, they've never seen the sea. So there is no seafaring element to, uh, to Lord of the Rings, but we're definitely going to get a ton of it in the second age because we're going to be in Numenor, which is an Island and everybody there loves, loves the sea. Yeah. Ooh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see the the beautiful, you know, shifts ships in the harbors and all of it. It's gonna be it's gonna be visually, I think, really stunning. So Jen, you tell me if I'm reading a little bit too much into this, but I mean, I probably definitely am, and that's the fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> but Tolkien tells us that Manelda loved the stars, that that was his passion. Uh, you know, he didn't care for the sea so much, but he loved to look at the stars and study uh, the lore of the world. Uh, and he actually built his own sort of, you know, fortress of solitude in Forestar. Um, and there's some more geography. That's the northern part of the island. So we learned that that's, and we can, I don't think I'll go into it now, but there are, we get some good geographic descriptions of the different parts of the island and the description of Numenor. 
but he builds his own fortress there in, in Forest Art for the purpose of surveying the heavens. And to me, that sort of harkens back to Manway and Varda. Um, Varda, who I I named you as Varda, so Varda, chime in if I'm getting anything wrong here. But she's the one that filled the two lamps with light. She created the stars and the sun and the moon. She's most beloved among elves. Elbreth Gilthoniel, she shows up in tons of songs. She shows up in Lord of the Rings. She's referenced a number of times. She's actually like spoken as a, her name is spoken as like a word of power to um, fight off the darkness. Varda. Elbreth Gilthoniel. You know, it's something that Frodo will say in in difficult times to ward off the darkness. Um, But so Varda, you know, loved the stars, created the stars. And so in a way, this description of Meneldil sort of connects him. It, if you were really familiar with Tolkien's works, it sort of subliminally links him to Manwe and Varda, which of course, I mean, that's the king and queen of the Valar. I think that just sort of roots him even more firmly in the sort of good guy column in Tolkien's universe. Mm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're so right. That's not something I'd thought about, but you're so right. And it and it makes sense. Again, like we've got Iluvatar, the god of the universe, and then we have his sort of um angels, so to speak, and then we have the creation. So and it all it all um it all references each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And Tolkien loves to do this. So I think you're absolutely right. So another thing that I think we may see, just because of the setting. We know that he built his fortress in Forestar, so we know from the description of Numenor that that is a part of the island of Numenor where many of the eagles nest. So the eagles are again closely associated with Manway. The great eagles, you know, are nice, are our favorite characters that save the day constantly in the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Um, but they nest in Forestar, so they hang out in the same place that Belendil hangs out. And so to the extent we get to see Melendil doing what he does. Menelder. Uh, oh. <laughs> All right. Close. Rewind. You're close. Yeah. <laughs> Menelder. Uh, I'm getting tongue-tied already. But to the extent that we see Menelder, we might see some eagles, which are really cool because we don't get to see them up close very often in Lord of the Rings. They are a, sort of a fascinating creature in the Legendarium. So I would be excited to... Not just to see them, but to actually maybe see a little more substantive interaction with them. You know, we know that they spoke in The Hobbit and there was dialogue. I think that would be hard. That's the thing is I would love to see more, but how do you, it's tough to execute that kind of stuff without it getting campy and cheesy. That's the thing. So, I mean, I'd be totally happy if they're just swooping around like these beautiful eagles and we kind of see them do their thing, but don't speak. I think, I think like. It, they have to toe the fine line in this series of we can't make this, you know, cheesy. Right. Um, and and it's just hard to do. I think a balance can be struck. But, um, yeah, I'd be totally happy if there's if the eagles are there and uh, and we do get to see at least see them. That would be very cool. Yeah, you're right. Um, Talking animals is very difficult to pull off convincingly. It's just tough to execute unless it's like a children's movie or story. Right, right. Um, but next, um, moving on in the in the book, uh, we get a description of Aldarion, and he is described of as a man of great stature, strong and vigorous in mind and body, golden-haired as is his mother, ready to mirth and generous, but prouder than his father and ever more bent on his own will. 
From the first, he loved the sea, and his mind was turned to the craft of shipbuilding. He had little liking for the North Country and spent all the time that his father would grant by the shores of the sea, especially near Romena, where was the chief haven of Numenor, the greatest shipyards and the most skilled shipwrights. So we get a really great, um, we get a really great uh, glimpse of him and uh, insight into him that he is proud. He is prouder, you know, than his father, bent on his own will. Those qualities are never good in Tolkien's uh, universe. And from the outset, he's he's very much contrasted with his father. Right. And uh, his father loves Numenor, all things in it. His father you know, abandon his passion for the stars and the heavens just to, when he received the scepter and his time came to be king, he devoted himself to ruling. So he is somebody who thinks that putting aside your passion for a greater purpose is is paramount. And um, so already we see that these two, you know, are are very different people. And um, that this is a very central tension in the book, the tension between Meneldor and his son, whose duty is always coming secondary to his passion. He will not curb his passion. And um, Tolkien's choice of wording uh, did little to hinder him for many years, implies that um, Meneldor did not fully approve of his his passion. So a lot of conflict is, is foreshadowed here. And... I again, we get at this character deep dive, which is really helpful and uh, also really unique. Yeah, and I think you hit on the most important point: is that Tolkien is devoting the first, you know, couple pages here to a description of uh, Menelder and then a description of Eldarion, and they are almost polar opposites in so many different ways. One is without pride; the other one has pride and is bent on his own will which is another phrase that Tolkien uses in other places in the legendarium. And it's always a negative quality and um, they're just polar opposites. And so I think starting off the the story that way just tells us so much about what the story is going to be about. And we're going to see, I mean, you know, keep an eye on that as the story goes along and, you know, catalog these traits in your head, put a pin in that. And I think we'll see it play out uh, time and again throughout the story, how these different character traits, you know, end up, conflicting with each other um, and coming to a head. One thing that I noticed about this section, you know, getting back to setting is that, you know, it says that Aldarion likes to hang out in Romena, which is the chief haven of Numenor, you know, because he's a seafaring bloke, he's going to be hanging out there a a lot. And because he's basically our main character or one of two main characters, I think that we're going to spend a lot of time. If they do adapt this story, we're going to spend a lot of time in the chief haven. I, I think we're probably going to spend a lot of time there no matter what story is being told in Numenor, because it is the central hub. Um, but we will definitely, that'll be sort of uh, location number one in the story of the mayor's wife, if it gets adapted. Right. And I, I realized I didn't read real quick. I'm going to read the very last section of that um, passage that I read. Cause I realized I cut it off a little too soon. So I want to mention this because it's important. Um, Aldarion's father did litter, little to hinder him for many years, being well pleased that Aldarion should have exercise for his hardihood and work for thought and hand. So we see in the beginning, in the very beginning, Menelder is not curbing Aldarion. Aldarion's love of the sea he's he's encouraging it you know he's kind of indulging him because it's it's harmless at this point and he wants him to have an occupation um so that that will all change later but we're not there yet yeah well and I think that was such an interesting sentence too actually I'm glad that you went back and read that because 
it, it's very subtle, but Tolkien's word choice, you know, the fact that his father did little to hinder him for many years, it, it implies that he would be inclined to hinder him, that he wouldn't approve, that he did not approve fully of Aldarian's um, focus and passion on, you know, seafaring life. Uh, and that gets into culture again, because he was, you know, a prince of Numenor and he was not a mariner. He was not a, a, you know, an explorer in these different things. And so his role is very much to learn about Numenor and govern it and rule, you know, and they were in those times, they were brought up from a young age to do that. And he's sort of, he's not doing that. And right, so his right. father is, is none too pleased, but allowing him to to kind of pursue his interests at this right. point, at least when he's yeah, young. Yeah, but it says he did little to hinder him. Basically, he's putting up with it is, is what that means. He's putting up with it. Right. Um, but he's hope, hoping that his son will grow out of it. So the next section here, I, you know, Aldarion's grandfather, we learn, is Vienter, um, and the grandfather on his mother's side. And he is a, you know, a seafaring master. He's actually, we know he's the first to take the voyage from Numenor to Middle-earth. And he takes a liking to Eldarion, so they actually have a very strong relationship, cultivates Eldarion's love of the sea. He teaches him to row and manage a sail. And by the time Eldarion is just 25 years old, Vianter asks him to accompany him on a voyage to Middle-earth, and likely Vianter's last voyage. And Eldarion asks his father, who is reluctant to sanction the voyage, and so let's pick up there. So he asks him for permission, and, quote, Menelder was loath to grant it. A chill came upon him, as though his heart guessed that more hung upon this than his mind could foresee. But when he looked upon the eager face of his son, he let no sign of this to be seen. Do as your heart calls, Anya, he said. I shall miss you sorely, but with Vienter as captain under the grace of the valor, I shall live in good hope of your return. But do not become enamored of the great lands, you who may one day must be king and father of this isle. So he gives his blessing. He sees how eager Adelarion is to go, but he cautions him not to become enamored of the Great Lands, um, reminding him of his responsibility. So again, this is, I think there's foreshadowing. Uh, we know Adelarion is going to become enamored of the Great Lands, um, and it's going to become in conflict with his duties as, as king to be. Um, so Adelarion is gone for two years, and Menelder is anxious for him to return. Uh, we learn that on his journey, he spends time with Kyrdan the shipwright, who teaches him uh, much about building ships and walls to, quote, withstand the hunger of the sea. So he teaches them how to make harbors and, and things like that. He travels around Eriador and familiar, some familiar places and familiar people that we know from the uh, other uh, works in the Legendarium. And so, you know, he visits with Gilgalad, High King of the Noldor. And so he basically, this is his sort of coming of age experience, his, his first interaction with Middle Earth. And I think where we see his love of the sea and of sea voyaging really take root. Right. And, you know, again, I think this would be perfect for the series to feature in some way, shape, or form because Kyrda and the shipwright, I mean, that's an important character in, in the Second Age, as is Gilgalad. And so th this would tie in so nicely, you know, if we did get to see. I know the timeline doesn't quite add up, but if they could somehow, you know, finagle it, uh, we have these other characters that that are in the Second Age and Middle Earth uh, that that peek through this narrative. So, uh, yeah, just another reason why I think this would be a great yeah, choice. And um, you know, you say that, and I th I think I was really I've really been on the fence about whether or not it's likely that they would adapt this story because 
it is a love story, you know, first and foremost. And it doesn't, you know, spoiler alert, it doesn't really get strongly into what's going on in Middle Earth, although that is that is referenced a little bit. It happens a little bit off screen, but it's not the focus of this narrative. You know, the focus of this story is, is that it's a love story. So, you know, to the extent that the show wants to focus on the rise of Sauron, there's not a lot of that in this story. But I think, and, you know, the more we talk about it and hearing what you have to say, I think it would be a great first season because it's a great introduction, a great slow developmental introduction into this world and introducing the audience to the world. You know, we know that the show opens in a time of peace, um, which in our, I think our first episode we talked about could be, you know, around the year five, 600 in the second age. And this story takes place right around there. I think around 700 of the second age. So it is right in that time of peace period. And it'd be a good way to introduce us to Numenor in sort of a, a, a slow, um, easygoing way. And through his adventures into Middle-earth, it would introduce us to Cirdan. It would introduce us to Gilgalad. Potentially, Absolutely. he could be sort of our narrator, sort of acting as the audience, introducing us, taking us through Middle-earth and introducing us to all the characters we need to know. And in this whole time, you know, Sauron could be still over there stirring in the east and we get little glimpses of that. Right. So I, I would I would be ecstatic if this was the first season. You know, I'd be equally as happy if it was a spinoff and there was a whole season, a whole spinoff devoted to this. I think you could absolutely make that happen. Right. Uh, right. But back to the narrative. We kind of took a detour, but we'll we'll get back Which to we the will. narrative here. We will here. take many detours, just like Eldarion. We will take, yeah, I mean. Absolutely. So when Eldarion finally returns from this big venture, his first voyage out to sea, his father is elated, um, but he asks about what Eldarion saw, and Eldarion is is list, listless, and he's already clearly longing to venture out again. He just got back, and he wants to go out again. Um, and from the book, quote, it seemed to Minelder when he welcomed his son in the house of Vienter that he had grown in stature and his eyes were brighter, but they looked far away. What did you see, Onya, in your far journeys that now lives most in memory? But Aldarion, looking east towards the night, was silent. At last he answered, but softly, as one that speaks to himself, the fair people of the elves, the green shores, the mountains wreathed in cloud, the regions of mist and shadow beyond guess, I do not know. He ceased, and Minelder knew that he had not spoken his full mind, for Aldarion had become enamored of the great sea, and of a ship riding there alone without sight of land, borne by the winds with foam and its throat to coasts and havens unguessed, and that love and desire never left him until his life's end. So... He's he's entranced by this experience. He he's already longing to go back. Um he basically here we're introduced to the main one of the main themes and ideas of the story is that um and one of Aldarion's primary character flaws and that he's always longing. This longing of the sea has gripped him and he's never free of it and he can never be content. Um, and he will not curb this longing or this passion for the sea that he has for anything or anyone. So this is a very central and important mm-hmm. um, important part of the story here. Yeah, absolutely. And I love this description uh, you know, in that last sentence, you know, a ship riding there alone without sight of land, borne by the winds with foam at its throat to coast and havens unguessed. I mean, the language is 
beautiful yeah. in this whole story. But and there's nothing, and, which is why I mean. So I think you know what I take from that though. It is inspiring. He's an adventurer, and he's there's nothing wrong with this desire. This it is a love. It is a beautiful and at this point relatively pure love and desire for the sea and adventure. And um, it, it you know there's no hint. You know, other than the stuff that we talked about in terms of the, you know, the foreshadowing from the contrast of his character with his father's, but there's no hint in this description of his love of the sea that there's anything wrong with it. And really there, there isn't, it's not inherently wrong. You know, what, what becomes wrong is um, his unwillingness to compromise his own passions for, you know, his relationship, which we'll learn about later, but um but the love of the sea, there's really nothing wrong. It's really a beautiful thing. And the way it's described is so beautiful. Right. At this point, it's, you know, he's found a calling in life, like a, a, a calling, a passion, if you will. And um, and you're right. That is a beautiful thing. And it's 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 a it's a now become a core part of his of his personhood, right. which is why later on it's going to cause so much. Trouble. And all this it's really a metaphor for independence. I mean, I, I think so much about him is. He Aldarion is a metaphor, is himself a metaphor for just the desire to be an independent person, you know, whether an independent man, independent woman, just independence. I mean, you know, he, he loves the idea of riding there alone without sight of land, you know, a ship alone without sight of land. He, he just he just loves being on his own and the risk that comes with that, the independence and freedom that comes with that. So I think in many ways, Tolkien is exploring this desire inherent in a lot of people to be right he's 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 exploring passion he's exploring desire i love the word becoming enamored of the great sea he's enamored of Mm -hmm. it he can't get enough of it and anybody who has you know who has like a a zest or a passion for something can knows this feeling when you're in the throes of doing what you're truly passionate about um that it can be entirely uh it's a it's powerful right and we learned just how powerful um, because Aldarion only took three years before he decided he needed to go on another voyage. And that voyage lasted three years. So he's away. F- this prince is away from his island and his kingdom for three years. And then he returns from that voyage and sh- not long after that decides to go on another voyage, this time of four years. And, you know, we know that he's learning much from Cirdan during this time. He is just loving this passion. Um, but you can imagine being gone three years, being gone four years, that's got to be tough on his father, on his mother, on his, you know, the people who are expecting things from him um, in his homeland where he has or will have responsibilities. Um, but during these periods, when he goes on these trips, he's venturing farther and farther south, all the way to the Bay of uh, Belfalas, which is, we know where Gondor is. So that's very far south. I mean, Gondor is almost as far south as Mordor. In fact, so he, he's really venturing pretty far south and exploring. When he, but when he turns thirty-nine, his father Maneldil becomes the king, and Maneldor. <sighs> you got it. It's okay. You know, I'm just going to do it on purpose now. Maneldil does sound better in your defense. <laughs> this is Maneldor. I actually wrote Maneldil in the notes, which is what's going to kill me. That's what's getting you. Okay. okay. Manelder. <laughs> I'm sorry to correct you. It's just. <laughs> well, if it's not you, it's going to be the troll. Well, see, maybe I should. I should pronounce it wrong so we get some trolls. 
And then that's how we know what also, we think. Also, Aldarion, just while we're on this topic, you're, I'm saying, we're just saying it differently. I don't know who's right, but I was saying Aldarion. Aldarion. What am I saying? Al- Aldari, what am I saying? Aldarion. Or, yeah. Oh, with more of you're an saying A. saying it with differently. More of an A. Say it real quick. Aldarion. Aldarion. Aldar. Uh, I'm saying oh. Darion. Aldarion. Well, I'll, I have no idea which way is the right way, so I'll, I don't I'll know go either. with your way. Actually, <laughs> uh, Aldarion. <laughs> Aldarion. Aldarion. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Prove me, I don't know if I'm right prove or wrong. Prove me wrong. I just prove me wrong. Aldarion. Aldarion. <laughs> God. Wait, I'm sorry. I derailed us. I shouldn't have said anything. So when his father, Melanilil, becomes the king, Aldarion become he restrains himself for a time. <laughs> and he, he's, he stays at home. He hangs out with his dad. Uh, to help his you know, dad transition into being king. But eventually the sea longing gets its hooks into him again and he starts thinking, not just going back to sea, but he's thinking of more ambitious projects, bigger ships that can take longer voyages. He wants to improve the havens using the knowledge Kurdan gave him. Uh, so we'll, we'll read a passage here. But the sea longing came upon him anew and he departed again and yet again from Numenor. And his mind turned now to ventures that might not be compassed with one vessel's company. Therefore, he formed the Guild of Venturers that afterwards was renowned. To that brotherhood were joined all the hardiest and most eager mariners, and young men sought admission to it, even from the inland regions of Numenor. And Aldarion, (laughs) they called the great captain. At that time, he, having no mind to live upon land in Armanelos, had a ship built that should serve as his dwelling place. He named it therefore Yambar, and at that time, and at times, he would sail in it from haven to haven of Numenor. But for the most part, it lay at anchor off Tol Eunin, and that was a little isle in the Bay of Romena that was set there by Eunin, the Lady of the Sea. Upon Yambar was the guild house of the venturers, and there were kept the records of their great voyages. For Tar Menelder looked close, looked coldly on the enterprises of his son, and cared not to hear the tale of his journeys believing that he sowed the seeds of restlessness and the desire of other lands to hold. Ooh. And I think, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that in that section, but I think the most important piece is the very last sentence where Menelder believed that Aldarion's passion sowed the seeds of restlessness and the desire of other lands to hold. The desire of other lands to hold. Possessiveness. I mean, Tolkien hates possessiveness. I mean, that sounds like Sauron, you know, the, the desire to to dominate and, and possess. Morgoth wants to possess. Right. Uh, you know, it's definitely not foreshadowing anything. Right. Good. And I'm not trying to compare Aldarion with Sauron or Morgoth or anything, but, the, you know, possessiveness is a, a negative trait. And, um, and you know, the, Tolkien's not even saying that that necessarily is what Aldarion's desire is here, but it is what uh, Tar Menelder, his father, who I think at, even by at this early stage in the story, we're supposed to understand is sort of wise and has some foresight. He believes that it's sowing those seeds in his son and is, uh, doesn't really like all this activity. So I, I think that's really right. Important. And I mean, you can see his perspective in that. Okay. So basically Aldarion has just founded a boys club of venturers and their whole purpose is to sail around and discover new man, new lands. And, and, and I think that the King, you know, feels some frustration with this and that he is he is wanting Aldarion to show interest in governing and ruling and cultivate his knowledge of um, his people and 
you know, become become a leader and ruler. And so this is at this point, this is a massive distraction and trending in the wrong direction. Um, and yeah, the- so you can see his concern really building here and Eldarion just investing more and more and recruiting other people into his ventures mm-hmm. now. And the Guild of Ventures, right, you know, Boys Club, basically – this is this is a fraternity. <laughs> These are a bunch of frat boys. They're playing beer pong on their floating frat house. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're singing the they're singing those sea shanty songs all night long, annoying everyone. Sailing from port to port. I mean, he doesn't even have a house anymore. He just has a ship. He lives on his ship. He lives on his ship. I mean, if that's yeah, that's sort of indicative of just how deep. A hold this this obsession has on yeah him. he's withdrawing yeah. from the larger Numenorean community he's he's lives on a ship on the sea he's got his own club his own group they call him the great captain you know so he's he's created a club that reveres him that sets him on a pedestal that sets him apart from the rest of the Numenorean community I mean you know I definitely see what his father's concerns are here because right he, he's so becoming more separate from the rest of the community. Yeah. So for this reason, Aldarion does become estranged from his father, essentially. Um, but the venturers grew in number and esteem, it says from the book. And Aldarion uh, became the less easy, less easy to rebuke or restrain. The ships of the Numenorians became even larger and of greater draught in those days until they could make far voyages carrying many men and great cargoes. And Aldarion was often long gone from Numenor. So when Menelder forbade the felling of trees for ships um, out of, because out of frustration because they had been felling the trees and not replenishing them, um, Aldarion began thinking about building a haven in Middle Earth and ultimately did establish Vinyalonde or the New Haven, mm-hmm. as he called it. So um, I want to pause here and kind of discuss, you know, the themes of colonization and. Um, the dangers therein. So I, I'm wondering what uh, Tolkien's intent was in in writing this. Like, was this was he thinking about colonization? Was this an indictment on England? Um, do we know his personal thoughts and feelings on this matter? Um, it just so happens that we do have some uh, knowledge of his thoughts and feelings. We, he wrote certain letters. Uh, one was letter 100 that he wrote on May 1945 which was, I know nothing about British or American imperialism in the Far East that does not fill me with regret and disgust. Mm. Um, you know, he he also definitely um, had things to say about apartheid and his feelings right. about that. Um, in, 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 in a valedictory address in 1955, he said, I had the hatred of apartheid in my bones. Um, and... You know, he also, in certain letters, discussed the treatment of, he said, the treatment of color nearly, nearly always horrifies me, uh, horrifies anyone going out from Britain, not only in South Africa. Um, and so I, I think, and this is speculation, and I could be wrong, but I think that he did not think positively about um, England's subjugation of different uh, places and cultures. And this could be we could be seeing an inkling of that in this work, perhaps. That's such an interesting point. And, uh, you know, I hadn't thought too too deeply about that because, you know, we know that Tolkien uh, openly despised allegory. So I think we can safely assume that, you know, this 
story in Numenor, it's not supposed to be allegorical in sort of a one-to-one type of sense. You know, Numenor is England who's colonizing Middle-earth. We're not supposed to go that far. But I think you're absolutely right that, I mean, to the extent that he had these beliefs where he thought really negatively about England's uh, colonial history, that would certainly inform the way that he wrote this story and, and the way that he portrayed Numenor's spread into Middle-earth, which I think as time goes on in the Second Age, it is depicted as almost entirely negative. I mean, as Numenor becomes, you know, the shadow falls on Numenor, their interaction with Middle-earth Middle becomes negative because they are subjugating the the men in Middle-earth and the peoples of Middle-earth, and they're no longer coming as benefactors, but as conquerors. And, you know, I don't think there's a single instance in all the legendarium where um, any sort of power conquers another group and it is depicted favorably by Tolkien or, or, you know, where he uses favorable language. It is always discussed in a negative way. And so I think there's no way to look at that other than to agree with the point you're making, which is that that is consistent with a negative outlook and a negative view of the, you know, England's colonial history. And I know that, you know, many academics um, and Tolkien himself rail against, you know, don't talk about Tolkien's personal thoughts and feelings. Uh, well, this issue is controversial and that Tolkien wanted you to appreciate his works in and of themselves. Um, but, you know, I can't help myself. So we are occasionally going to talk about that kind of thing on this podcast. <laughs> well, and, you know, even if we don't know what his thoughts are on colonialization and colonization, um, we can have our own thoughts about it and just, you know, comparing it to, you know, the history of many different cultures that are, you know, conquerors or that are being colonized. Um, I think we can draw the, the, the same parallels and just um, find it really right. interesting. And how can we not? I mean, we have a super powerful culture here. The Numenorians were the superpower mm -hmm. of the of the human race on in Middle Earth. And they're exploring these other territories. And we're gonna see later on they they do end up subjugating these these other territories and taking their resources. Right. And so of I mean, of course we're going to draw parallels to real life and and how these things have played out. In our realm. And, you know, how, how can we be surprised? I mean, this all started out with basically a fraternity. And is there any movie where the frat guys are the good guys? Has anything I don't think ever, so. Has anything good come out of fraternities? <laughs> can we all agree? I mean, I'm just envisioning these the Numenorians just giving like the weaker Numenorians swirlies. Like the Guild Adventurers just picking on the little Numenor, Numenorians, just giving them swirlies. They're chopping down all the trees. They're playing with their, you know, wood all over the place. This is... Uh, uh, Total sausage fest, total debauchery. It's a mess. It's a mess. This is this is uh, not a good digression that we're going down. No. So I think let's cut there because that has covered a lot of prologue, essentially. We've learned about our characters. And the next bit, we're going to finally meet our second main character. And I, I think that we want to pick that up in the next episode of our podcast. Yes, and we are so excited to keep exploring this work. Please uh, read along with us if you're able or listen along and give us your feedback. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time.
Hello, watchers, and happy spring. Today, um, in honor of the approaching Tolkien Reading Day, which is coming up this Wednesday, I'm going to read an early poem uh, from J.R. Tolkien, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the background. So here is the poem. Erendil sprang up from the ocean's cup in the gloom of the midworld's rim, from the door of night as a ray of light leapt over the twilight brim, and launching his bark like a silver spark from the golden fading sand, down the sunlit breath of day's fiery death he sped from Westerland. So I'm getting all my information and I'm reading segments from the wonderful Humphrey Carpenter uh, Tolkien biography. If you haven't read it, uh, you definitely should. It's chock full of a lot of really fascinating information regarding Tolkien and his various works and his life. Um, so while Tolkien was studying um, Middle English and Old English, he stumbled upon um, a poem uh, which was called Christ of the Kind Wolf. I believe that's how you say it, which is a group of Anglo-Saxon religious poems. So two lines from these poems struck him forcibly. And these lines were, Eala erendil angla bortast ofer midengird monum sended. And the meaning of this was, Hail Erendil, brightest of angels above the Middle Earth, sent unto mend. Erendil is glossed by the Anglo-Saxon dictionary as a shining light, a ray. But here, it clearly has some special meaning. Tolkien himself interpreted it as referring to John the Baptist, but he believed that Erendil had originally been the name for the star presaging the dawn, that is, Venus. He was strangely moved by its appearance in the Kynowulf lines. I felt a curious thrill, he wrote long afterwards, as if something had stirred in me, half awakened from sleep. There was something very remote and strange and beautiful behind those words, if I could grasp it, far beyond ancient English. So we fast forward to the summer of 1914. This is um, later in the book, uh, and I'm reading again from the biography. At the end of the long vacation, he traveled to Nottinghamshire to stay for a few days on the farm that his Aunt Jane was running with the Brooksmiths and his brother Hilary. While at the farm, he wrote a poem. It was headed with the line from Kynewulf's Christ that had so fascinated him. Eela Erendil Engla Portas. Its title was The Voyage of Erendil, the Evening Star. So... The succeeding verses that I did not read describe the star's ship's voyage across the firmament, a progress that continues until the morning light blots out all sight of it. This notion of the star mariner whose ship leads into the sky had grown from the reference to Erendil in the Kina Wolf lines, but the poem that it produced was entirely original. It was, in fact, the beginning of Tolkien's own mythology. So I, I love this for a couple reasons. One being um, I love the light of Erendil or the star of Erendil is actually our logo on this podcast. So we'll probably spend a whole episode at some point just talking about the logo uh, because it's just a beautiful work of art created by my best good friend, Miss Aubrey Brunswick. And we're so grateful to her for that. Uh, but if you want to know more about our logo, uh, definitely write us and we'll chat more in depth about it. But I hope everybody enjoys Tolkien reading day and thank you so much again for tuning in. Thank you.